So we're starting a new four, uh, three or four week series today called How to Bully a Bully. Um, this series has been on my mind and I was talking with a pastor about it. He goes, you can't preach that. You can't say that. You can't talk about bullying bullies. You can't say bully. You can't refer to bullying bullies. And I was like, well, why can't I? And, uh, and we fleshed it through. And I want to tell you in a moment why we decided to do, do this series and why we decided to call it what we did. We live right now in a world full of bullies. We live in a bullying world. That's the world that we live in. Carson and I were talking about just moments this week in the news where gracious and good things happen. And it's always shocking to see uh, a relative of someone who had their life taken from them hug the person who took it and show grace because we live in an angry world right now where people feel angry, people feel unheard. At the same time, people feel like they have a platform to go online or to go out and say and do whatever they want and to lash out. And our world right now is full of bullies. The truth is, uh, biblically speaking, there are three kinds of bullies. And before we even dive into today's message, I want to say we're going to spend the, the first week talking about the first bully, which is the external bully, the bully without. And, uh, and this is the bullies that we always think of. This is the mean kid in school. I can tell you in my life, they were the Martusis, Chris and Mike Martusi. I hated those guys. Uh, these are the, there's the, the bullies without. Those are obvious. That's what we're going to talk about today. The next type of bully is the bully within. Man, this is the bully that speaks loud to us and yells condemnation at us and things like that and bullies us around. And I watch you as your pastor, you try to fight the good fight and bully back that bully. But there are these bullies within that tell us we're not good enough. God doesn't love us. We've outsinned his grace. We're never going to amount to anything. He's done with us. That's a bully. And then the third type of bully is the unseen bully. And I think this is the, the most daunting one because Ephesians 6 talks about how we live in a world where there's, there's spiritual battle all around us and, uh, and there's powers and things that we don't see and there's an unseen uh, evil realm in addition to the godly realm. And God wins and God is already victorious through Jesus, but man, there's this unseen realm. Sometimes it just feels like the devil is at your throat. And that's a bully. And so we're going to talk about that in this series. Man, I, I mentioned the Martusis. I could not stand those guys. We would play football uh, in our neighborhood in the yard, right? And there was a few of us. It was Casey, Jeff, Kurt, my brother Jason and I, and Chris. And we would play. And the Martusis lived further up the street. And they would come. And the Martusis always wanted to fight. You knew if the Martusis showed up to play football in the yard, it was going to end in a fight. Every time. And I never, like, and they were big, and they were, um, they were just full-on Italian, uh, hot-headed guys, and man, they would always, they would always sort of, we'd always end in a fight, and it would always go one-on-one in the fight with the Martusis. And I never will forget the one day we finally wised up and decided, you know what, we can't beat the Martusis alone, but together, we can beat their behinds. And like six of us got on the two of them, and we tore them a new one. And that was the end. From then on, the Martusis played nice when they came over and we played football in Chris Murphy's front yard. Uh, As Christians, there comes a moment where we have to say, we're not going to be bullied anymore. But we have to do that by God's means. See, we live in a world where everybody just wants to go rogue and bullying back bullies. 
But man, we have to do that by God's means that he lays out for us if we're followers of Jesus. Now I want to tell you about man's means of bullying. A couple of people in this room right now are from Kentucky. I think they're sitting on the back row. Is anybody, are, uh, are you from Kentucky too, Ms. Gale? Yes. You are too? And David and Natalie. Are there any other people here from Kentucky? They all just naturally clustered together. Now, the Kentucky people will know this story better than others. In the 1860s, the Hatfields and the McCoys began this legendary feud. I mean, there's been movies and miniseries and everything else made of it. The Hatfields were from West Virginia. The McCoys, I believe, were from Kentucky. And it started when a McCoy named Asa Harmon McCoy chose to fight with the Union Army in the, in the Civil War. And the Hatfields and a lot of the McCoys chose to fight with the Confederacy. And as Asa McCoy was coming back from battle, walking through uh, Hatfield Confederate sort of territory, they shot him and killed him. And that began this legendary feud between these two families that escalated for 30 years of of retribution. There were more than a dozen people killed on both sides. Nine Hatfields went to jail for a long time for stuff that happened. Stuff was vandalized. People's homes were burned down. And I want to tell you, you have a descendant of a Hatfield in the room right now. My wife's grandmother's maiden name was actually Hatfield. Now, Mamaw Naylor was a mean cuss from everything I understand. That was what they would say about her. I only met Natalie's grandma in the nursing home, and she was small and old and feeble. But they said one night she had this, like, Kentucky mountain sense of justice in her. One night somebody broke into her house in the middle of the night. And did she just act quiet? No. She went and got her shotgun and walked out into the middle of the street in Crab Orchard, Kentucky, and shot down the street to let that person know, do not ever come in my house again. Somebody tried to break into her house, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. She was going to take them out. They endangered her. She was going to endanger them if that's what it would take. She was going to take out that would-be robber, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth people. For you, when you're threatened, do you tend to want to fight back? Do you want to get even? Do you want to settle the score? I do. If somebody cuts me off in traffic, there's something gross in me that wants to just go after. I never will forget, this caught up to me about six months ago. We were in a rental car, and I wouldn't let this guy cut in in traffic. He was trying to mess with me. And I'm looking at him. He's doing the Boston this, you know, this is what you do. Like, he's doing this number. And I'm doing, like, eye things, trying not to let Natalie see me. And all of a sudden, he gets gets behind me, goes around. He's yelling out the window, and all of a sudden... He throws a coffee cup at our car and hit our window right by Natalie. Well, that was the moment where I realized, like, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, escalating might not be the best plan of attack for me and for uh, my family. Like, it it terrified me, honestly, because they threw something and it hit right by Natalie. Like, there's something in some of us that wants to settle the score and, and get even, especially with bullies. And it may be that you don't even want to fight back for you. It may be that you love underdogs and want to fight back when you see someone else bullied. I want to talk today about what Jesus says about that. If you've got a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 5. If you've got one of those paper Bibles uh, in the back, the large print version, it's page 899. The small print is page 472. We're going to read five verses today. 
Carson, if you'll pull up that first slide for me, if you don't mind. Let's see if you've got it in there. Maybe the screen. There you go. We're going to talk today just about retaliation and this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, responding to the bullies without. Now, Jesus is in the middle right here of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, where he is early in his ministry, and he's going to take some followers up onto a mountain, and he's going to be laying out sort of his kingdom ethic. This is Jesus' longest sermon, and uh, in it, he's going to, he lays out like the blessed are you when you do this, blessed are you when you do this, blessed are you when you do this, and then he talks about how the church is to be a city on a hill, and then he's going to get into this portion where he's going to give six statements and he's in all six he's going to say this he's going to say now you've heard it said this but I say to you this now this is coming from a long tradition let me just give you some backstory where in the Jewish tradition you have these Jewish rabbis and they would follow another rabbi's teaching and so they wouldn't speak anything authoritatively they would copy what someone else had said so they might say now you've heard uh Barb say this. And Barb got that from an interpretation of something that Marcy had said. And Marcy got that because Garvent said this. And there was this threat. And it would always end with them speaking someone else's authority. So Jesus says, you've heard it said. And it's like that telephone game. They would have this telephone game of authority on lust and anger and retaliation and all of these, and divorce and other subjects, right? And Jesus says, now you've heard it said through the telephone game, they got to all these rules, they created all these rules for how you had to live and all this stuff. He says, but I say to you, and this was different, no Jewish rabbis were doing this, nobody was saying Now, you've heard all this teaching, but let me just tell you. And Jesus is saying, I'm an authority. You can trust me. I'm going to lead you in the right way. He's speaking with authority as an authority. And on this part, he's going to talk about retaliation. Let's read together Matthew 5, starting in verse 38. Now, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, don't resist the one who's evil. But... If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile with him, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and don't refuse the one who would borrow from you. It's heavy stuff. We were talking with a group here from North Carolina this morning. They were saying, how do you know living in Boston who you should give money to and who you shouldn't give money to when you get asked on the streets? And, uh, and we talked a little. This is heavy, very relevant stuff to where we are right now in our journey. Carson, if you'll go to that next slide, if you don't mind, because uh, I can't remember what it is. No, I see what it is. There we go. Uh, Jesus calls us to be radical about retaliation. We're to be radically different. And let's talk about what that means. He says, this is coming from a verse in Exodus. Uh, when he talks about, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, he's referring to a passage in Exodus. It's actually Exodus 21, verse 24. In Exodus 21, 24, God is laying down some laws for the new country of Israel. And he says, uh, in, in Exodus 21, it says, this is how the government is to operate. Now, if you went to the Middle East today and you stole something from someone, you could, in theory, have your hand cut off. There was this, there's this escalating sense of justice. And Jesus is referring to a passage in the Old Testament where it says, the punishment has to meet the crime. 
You can't murder someone for stealing bread. And God set this law in the, in the, in the, the nation of Israel in Exodus 21 that says, here's how the country has got to operate. The problem became, over 1,500 years, people started taking those verses and started adding different things to them and, and bending the rules. So these guys had taken this verse, eye for eye, tooth for a tooth, and they said, oh, this can apply to your own life. And so if you, Coach Coleman, punched me in the gut, then rather than letting the government deal with that, what they would have been doing is they would have punched him right back and then punched him in the face. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, fight back, retaliation. That's what they were all about. And Jesus is saying a few things. One, he's reminding them that this is a government law. This is a restriction on unrestrained escalating violence. And this is a court issue. This is a court issue, Jesus is reminding them. It's not how believers were to act, how to act with one another. The Pharisees were using it personally, and he's trying to rein it in. So he says in verse 39, he's going to give four pictures here. If you like to write stuff down, we don't have a slide for this, but I'll tell you kind of the headings. The first thing he's going to give a restriction for is retaliation with the body. In verse 39, he said, But I say to you, don't resist one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Okay? Uh, come here, Desheen. I'm going to borrow you for a second. This is Desheen. He's probably my favorite uh, ball player on the Charlestown team because he makes fun of me every Sunday afternoon, right? All right. This is my right cheek, okay? You're right-handed, right? Yeah. All right. So if you were going to slap me with your right hand on the right cheek, how would you have to do that? It would be a... Nope, this is my right cheek. Not that one. Come at me on this side. How do you have to do it? Yeah. Okay. Great job. Good. Stay, stay right here. Stay right here. That, in Middle Eastern culture, slapping with the back of the hand is an insult. It's saying, you're not even worthy for me to slap you with the front of my hand. I'm going to slap you, with, slap you with the back of my hand. It's an insult. And Jesus says, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And so he's saying, when someone slaps you, your character needs to be so strong and your faith so strong that you say, why are you slapping me like I've done something wrong to insult me? He would say, turn the left, and now you come at me with the left. Now, boom. He's not, no, you did a great job. Give D a hand. Uh, I love this guy. He keeps me humble. And I swear by the end of this uh, basketball thing, I'm going to be whipped into shape just by his joking me. Um, Jesus is saying, don't, and Jesus isn't saying, let yourself be slapped twice. What he's saying is, your character should be in such a way, and your faith in such a way, that nobody can insult you by how you live. You have faith and you're strong. Uh, 1 Peter 2, 21 through 23. Let me flip there really quickly and read that to you. Uh, I'm just going to give you a part. For to this you are called, because Christ also suffered, setting you an example, so that you can follow in his steps. Jesus suffered for his people. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We're called to follow sometimes in Jesus' steps. It's not that we're to be slapped with an insulting, you have no character, you're nothing. It's that we're strong enough to say, you know what, Jesus went to the cross to lay down his life for others. And I may have to 
turn the cheek and show that I have faith and character to be willing to suffer as well. Jesus is essentially saying, you may slap me, but that's going to speak to your character and not to mine. You may slap me, but that speaks to your character and not to mine. Bonhoeffer, the German theologian, called this the visible participation in Jesus' cross. The second one in verse 40. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, in other words, if anyone would sue you and take your shirt, let him have your cloak as well. If anybody takes you to court to take your shirt, he says, give him your coat also. Again, he's saying, this is your character, not mine. If you want to drag me into court and steal my shirt... I'm going to show you that I'm above that, and you can have my coat as well. Jesus' name will not be tarnished by my behavior. I'm not going to sue you or contest you. The third one is, uh, so we've got body and clothing. The third one is the idea of service. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now, this is a, a Roman Empire law. In the Roman Empire... If I were a soldier, I could say to Amy, Amy, I got a backpack full of weapons and I need you to carry it for me for a mile. And legally, as a Roman citizen, you can't say I'm not going to do that. This is the law of conscription. So Amy, by law, would have to walk with me one mile. And at the end of one mile, she could say, all right, I did my duty. I can be home. Jesus says, if anyone forces you to go one mile... Go with him the second mile. And don't be swearing and pouting and trying like to, you know, kick, drag their stuff on the ground and be angry the whole time. Uh, can you imagine at the end of that mile as a Roman soldier, if you've, every time you've asked someone to do this, they've cursed you and cursed your stuff and cursed this moment the whole time. And then you go and you're, you've got this Christian Christ follower carrying your stuff. And at the end of the mile, they say... Man, I know this is a lot for you. Let me go ahead and just go that second mile with you. Rather than fight back or throw the stuff down, you might, that second mile, you might say, why are you doing that? Why would you go a second mile with me? And Jesus is saying in that moment, you're talking about your faith and your character and what it means to follow me. You're laying down your life. And then the fourth one, give to the one who begs from you and don't refuse the one who would borrow from you. The idea of money and stuff. Give to everyone who asks. Not give everyone exactly what they ask for. There's going to be some times, especially living in a city, where we're asked to give something that is not in the best interest of, every, of somebody. We don't have uh, the internet at our house yet, and my child is dying. If you got here late, you missed the, up, the news update on Noah. He is dying without the internet. He wants us to move heaven and earth pay Xfinity, whatever it would cost to get the internet. We don't give everything to the one who asks, but we give to everyone who asks. It might be that we give prayer, or it might be that we give an encouragement, or sometimes it might be that we give money. Sometimes it might be that we give food. There have been times in my life where somebody asked me for something, I gave them money. There have been other times in my life where somebody asked me for money, and I took them to lunch. And just sat down and listened to their story. There's been some times where I've been asked for something and I gave nothing. I didn't feel compelled to give except to look someone in the hand and look them in the eye, shake their hand and say, man, let me pray for you. How can I pray for you? We don't give everything to the one who asks. But Jesus says we give to everyone who asks. We give them something. The point is, in these verses, Jesus is reforming 
retaliation, and his followers are to be radical. We are to be radicals. Living in Boston, for me, as a follower of Jesus, sometimes, sometimes I just want to blend in. Not rock the boat, not be weird. Some of you have jobs where if you follow Jesus, it's like, I just don't want to be weird and get in trouble at work. You know what I mean? Jesus is not calling us to be weirdos, but he is calling us to be radicals. When you're at Charlestown High or you're at Boston Arts Academy, if you follow Jesus, God is calling you to be radical where you are. At your workplace with your neighbors and your co-workers and your friends and when you're at your kids' sporting events, Jesus is calling you not to be weirdos but to be radicals. And so I want to share a couple of, we're going to go through a bunch of slides here really quickly. I just want you to see it uh, because I think some of it's important. Carson, if you'll go to the next slide for me. This is about retaliation, not about self-defense. I want to lay that down. I want to put it in writing so that you see it. It's important that you see this. You are never called as a Christian to let your child be bullied. This is not about, Jesus is not, when he says turn the other cheek, he's not saying don't ever stand up for yourself. This is not about self-defense. This is about retaliation, feeling like we always have to escalate and even the score all the way till it gets out of control. Don't ever let your child, don't ever let yourself be bullied or feel like Jesus is calling you to be bullied. Don't let a robber come in and hurt your family. Oh, the ESPN, something good just happened. Uh, don't let, uh, we have a, I have a baseball bat at my house. I don't personally, this is just me, we're getting more into politics than anything else right now, and I don't mean to. I don't think I'm physically capable of taking someone's life with a gun, uh, but I am physically capable as, of beating them really well with a baseball bat. Uh, I will defend my house and my family if, if, if that's what this is about. That's about self-defense. Jesus isn't calling us not to defend ourselves. And, and you also need to not be afraid to let the courts know if something happens to you that violates the law. God has put government and authorities and laws and courts in place to do their jobs. And the scripture talks about this. Again, this is not about self-defense. This is about retaliation and evening the, even, not feeling like we have to even the score. Those things are put in place to do those things. That's in Exodus 21, eye for eye, tooth for a tooth. That's where that came from, was entrusting to the courts what's supposed to go to the courts. Carson, if you'll go to the next slide. So this is not a call to pacifism or to being punching bags. It's about submission to God. This almost, in a way, doesn't even have to do anything with somebody else. This is about our relationship with Jesus and our trust in him, entrusting vengeance to God. Let me read to you Romans 12 really quickly. In Romans 12, Paul is writing to the church at Rome, and he gets on this subject. And he says in verses 17 through 21, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what's honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with everyone. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Sounds amazing. Don't be overcome by evil 
but overcome evil with good. God is going to settle the scores, and we overcome evil with good. Now, we may not see it in our lifetime. There have been people through the centuries who have laid down their life and given their life in following Jesus so that they weren't, so they were submitting to God. It may lead us to martyrdom or to persecution. Submission may lead to pain, but it will always ultimately lead to God's glory. This is about submission to God. Submission is how we break the chain of evil action and reaction. Whether it's guns, fists, words, or phones, submission to God is how we break the chain, the evil chain of retaliation. The second, the second thing I want to share with you, Carson, and we'll move through these next four pretty quickly. Act decisively. I want to call you to act decisively. When I do marriage counseling with couples, I always talk with them about pre-decisions. Pre-decisions are decisions that you've made before you have to make a decision so that you don't have to make a decision in the moment. And we have lots of pre-decisions. Most of them are about fighting when I'm doing marriage counseling. Like I'll say, you never fight if you've had a drink. You never uh, go to bed angry. You never, and I've got a bunch of them that are pretty funny. Like if you ever need to get married, I'll be glad to do your marriage counseling and, uh, and you'll get in on some of the laughter and good stuff. We have to make pre-decisions of faith so in the moment we know what we're going to do. Here are three that I'll give you really quickly. Carson, if you, I've got them in here one by one. One, we need to live more, more generously than the law demands. Jesus says, you've heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you this, we need to live more generously than the law demands with our bodies, with our clothing, with our service, and with our money. The next one, the next thing that we have to make a pre-decision about is we need to live in a way that dignifies the self and glorifies Christ. Now, Desheen would never hit me, but that's a really good example. When I turn that cheek and say, this says more about your character than mine, I've just restored some dignity to myself and glorified Jesus. We need to say, at this situation at work, with a neighbor or whatever, I'm going to do this in a way that I don't lose my dignity and become a punching bag, and also in a way that's going to glorify Jesus. You guys are going to get in the season here in less than eight weeks, right? starts in less than eight weeks. Somebody is going to say something on the court that is going to be insulting and is going to get you to where you want to bow back up, right? I played church basketball. I don't know what high school basketball is like, but church basketball, I I heard somebody say one time, this doesn't have, we were playing a game and it was getting like really intense. And somebody said, this doesn't have anything to do with church. This is just about basketball. Uh, And that was true. Like Jesus was not in that gym. Like somebody will always say something that is going to cause you to want to ratchet it up just a little bit. And in that moment, you're going to have to have made a decision that you're going to dignify yourself and glorify Christ and how you're going to respond. And the third way we act decisively is, and this is the hardest one, We act for the good of the bully. We act for the good of the bully. That's hard. That's hard. We have to, instead of saying, what would vindicate me and get me back to even, we have to say, what is God's best for her? Or what is God's best for him? That's hard. And we have to make a pre-decision about that if we're going to follow Jesus well. We're called to respond in a way that would leave them curious, perplexed, embarrassed, and even broken before God. 
curious, perplexed, embarrassed, and even broken. And then the third thing I would tell you, Carson, if you'll go to this slide, is you're, we're called to live love. Live love. It's so hard to do in this world. We're called to live relentless love. Uh, if you'll even go to that next slide, if you don't mind. See, there's love and justice in the world. And justice is about the courts and the law and the government and authority. But love is about people and church and kingdom. And Jesus has set out this equation. Love is to be greater than justice. See, when what we deserved was to go stand before God with our sin and God say, I saw the way you acted on that day, that day, that day, that day. I saw what you did then, then, then. You're going to hell, hell, hell. He chose not to. When we could not work our way to God because of our sin and what we justly deserve was death and punishment and hell, God worked his way down to us in love, becoming a man and dying on the cross. So we deserved justice, but we got love. And that love, because Jesus lives in Christians, ought to flow out of Christians and cause us to live in a way that is more concerned about love than justice. Allow justice when needed, but live love. I want to read you a quote from uh, Dr. Martin Luther King's funeral, if I can. This was uh, shared by uh, Benjamin Mays. He said, if any man knew the meaning of suffering, King knew. House bombed, living day by day for 13 years under constant threats of death, maliciously being accused of being a communist, falsely accused of being insincere, stabbed by a member of his own race, slugged in a hotel lobby, jailed over 20 times, occasionally deeply hurt because friends betrayed him, and yet this man had no bitterness in his heart, no rancor in his soul, no revenge in his mind. And he went up and down the length and breadth of this world preaching nonviolence and the redemptive power of love. Man, let justice do what justice has to do, but we live love because love is a greater witness than justice. As Dr. King said, darkness cannot drive out darkness. That's retaliation. Darkness trying to drive out darkness is retaliation. He said only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. I think we even have that up there. Thank you, Carson. Only love can drive out hate. Nonviolence, refusing to retaliate, laying down his life. Uh, Dr. King changed laws. He changed the culture and he changed hearts. And we see over and over and over in, in Christian history, Christians who have done this. From the first century on. By laying down our li their lives, martyrs and those persecuted have changed the laws, changed the culture, and changed hearts. As far as living love versus living justice, Jesus held up and fulfilled the standard for us. Our sin bullied Jesus. Man, you want to know what it's like not to, like, you want to see the perfect picture of this? Look to Jesus on the cross, get an image, just sort of close your eyes for just a moment, see Jesus there hanging on the cross, the Son of God dying on the cross, giving his life, seeing his blood poured out. And then I want you to see you, our sin, punching him, yelling at him, spitting on him, ripping out his beard, telling him he's not good enough. And the power of God, which could have been unleashed on us and our sin, 
stayed there quietly and died and just said, it's finished. Jesus didn't fight back. When he could have bullied us and and given us justice, Jesus took it and he didn't fight back. He fulfilled the standard of the law for us. He laid down his life. He drew us in and the spirit lives in us and empowers us. How do you bully an external bully? How do you bully an external bully? Because we all have them. You submit to God, you trust in God, you act decisively, and you live love. And you live in such a way that says, what is going to be best for this person's soul to draw them in to the love of Jesus that when I deserve the cross and I deserve death, he stood there and took it for me. There's dignity in that. There's gospel in that. It's all about Jesus and the power of the gospel. Let me pray for us and then we will prepare to receive